Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, you're listening to Hell Has an Exit. This is episode 83 with my good friend, Millie. This is a two-part episode. This is going to be part one. Part two will be next week, and that will be episode 84. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview anyone who has a story of redemption, hope, and transformation. And I have a special guest today. That was a part of helping me so much. And I have such a special place for you in my heart. And we met doing a transformative training that was like 17 years long. <laughs> no, but sometimes like I ask people to do things or like read a book and they're like, oh, you know, I'm so busy. And I think about how much time and energy I put into this program. What was it, like four months? From beginning to end. Part you, one to yeah, part three almost was five months. Five months. Because I was talking to this girl and she's like, wow, you're really self-aware. And I'm just like, yeah, I've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, not just like 12-step based stuff. Like I've done, th- this is like my second training thing that I've done. I truly say that it was life-changing, one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. Couldn't imagine anyone else leading or doing the training. You can't put into words how interesting, I guess it's just like the little, like we do groups and then there's like this psychodrama that we do Mm -hmm. where you play out certain situations and you stand up and you walk around and you pretend people are someone else and you reenact things of your childhood. And there are some things that happened that I experienced that till today, one of the best things I've ever experienced in my life other than getting clean. Yeah. I, I mean, that the thing about the trainings that I, I really loved was the workshops, uh, you know, both when I was a student and then when I became a facilitator of it was that uh, the word you're probably looking for is the cathartic the catharsis that we do, like the, the is that what it is? Yeah, like that, like the awakening that happens mm-hmm. in there, and that you get an opportunity to fully express things that maybe you had bottled up, or, or for me, like I had things that came up that weren't that big of a deal to me. That while in there, I was like, oh my gosh, this shaped my entire existence. Mm-hmm. Like this little episode right here had me develop a story about me, the world, my family my experience of myself in the world that like kept me in a certain place. Mm -hmm. And then the moment I fully expressed that, like all of that experience, Mm -hmm. not as an adult, but as a child, I expressed it like as an adult in my adult body, but feeling like it was me as a child. Mm -hmm. I haven't really had to look back since. It's like like all all of these things that have been, these weights I carried were gone. Yeah, I always tell people it's like this undenying clarity where it's like before you kind of think about things and you don't think about them and you put them in the back of, you know, your memory and you kind of feel a certain way about it. And then like you try to justify, your you know, how it happened and you just don't know how you're supposed to feel about a certain scenario that causes a lot of like confusion and how we interact with people. And there were some things in the training that was just like crystal clear. You, this wasn't your fault. Th- you're a victim. Here it was your fault, you know. It's like it's like you fucked up. You were an adult. This is like your problem. Like we would bring up a habit. It'd always be like, you know, when's the first time you did that? Mm-hmm. 
me making like an inappropriate joke to like get people to like me or something, you know, it would always be like, well, when's the first time you did that? Mm-hmm. And why, you know, and it, it really brings you back to your childhood. It helped me so much with grief and loss. My relationship with my father and my relationship with my mom, business and my relationship with employees and employers. It, it was life changing. Yeah, I like the what you're talking about, that whole uh, bringing it back to the first time something happened. And it's funny because that's a, a little bit of the training and a little bit of my background in psychology mm-hmm. was, was when's the first time you remember feeling like that? Or mm-hmm. when's the first time that habit showed up? When's the first time that story? When's the first time you said that about yourself? And when you start looking about what was happening in that time, not what was happening internal, but what's happening externally, usually it's around the development age of, um, you know, like somewhere between three and eight Mm -hmm. human beings develop the ego. And so when something comes at us that doesn't feel right or doesn't feel good, we put it in a compartment like, I like that or I don't like that. And we make it good or bad, you know, Mm -hmm. evil, righteous, whatever you want to call it. And the moment we start categorizing events through that filter... That filter then develops our world. It, it, it creates, like, we can't see past the filters anymore. The filters, mm-hmm. the lenses. We were talking not too long ago about <laughs> rap music. Yeah. And now, like, the first time I heard rap music when I was, like, I don't know, 10 or so, 12 maybe, I began to see that there was this other experience that people close to my age were having that was so vastly different than my mm-hmm. own, and I was hooked from the moment on. And so I think that those experiences happen to us throughout lifetime where all of a sudden we're introduced to a different lens or mm-hmm. a lens is removed. Early recovery was that for me. The thing I like about the workshops and the trainings I facilitate are is that they're intentional, they're intense, and they're all at once. Mm-hmm. So it's not over like... You know, I think about my first couple of years of recovery, it took me years to drop some lenses and <laughs> change yeah. some stories. That happened. Think about it. that training that I facilitate is five days. Yeah. Five full yes, days. Five of full days of intense therapy, group therapy, getting uncomfortable. You can't hide. Nope. What I really liked about it is how organized it was. Mm-hmm. It was like extremely organized. And there were so many things and challenges that you can't hide who you are. <laughs> So it's like we would do an exercise where it's like, all right, everyone break up into groups and then you got to do X, Y, and Z and you got to find this or whatever. You can't pretend to be someone you're not. So it's like if you're the person who needs the control, you're going to be like, okay, guys, this is how we're going to do everything. If you're someone who's really passive and just lets other people, you know, think for them, you're going to do that. And then if you're someone who fucking thinks it's stupid and just, you know, Mm -hmm. not going to participate, you're going to do that. And then while you're doing the exercise, you're just so oblivious to how you operate and then when you pull back the screen and you analyze it, you start to see, like, where else do you behave like this? Yeah, because the way you do one thing, the way we say is the way that you do one thing can I, show you mm-hmm. how you do everything. Yeah. So if I show up a certain way here, especially if we're in intense pressure, mm-hmm. then that's probably the way I show up in life. And I like to say that we all have backup styles. So most human beings can choose. Like, we mm-hmm. can choose what we want to do at any yeah. given time. But we get backed up under pressure, and we always fall back into our... Comfort. Into that. Yeah. Com- and it's when it's comfort, it's not like comfort like a comfortable pair of shoes. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, I like to say laying in shit. What you're used to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Laying shit long enough, it's warm, it's wet, you get used uh-huh. to the smell, you become comfortable to yeah. it. You don't even realize you're laying in shit. And that's the way mm-hmm. I think the human condition and our filters are. We live in shit so much mm-hmm. that we don't realize we're living in it. And then all of a sudden you get out of it and you're like, man, I laid in that for a really long time. Why did I do that? I think I started doing therapy right before we did this training. You know, my therapist used to always say that like we we recreate our childhoods, even if we hate them. Mm-hmm. And everybody does this. Even if you like don't think you do it, everyone recreates their childhood 
relationships, how it felt to some degree, just because it's so comfortable to us as kids that we just end up in the same type of relationships, the same type of dynamics. If we had a lot of secrets growing up, we become adults and then we start to create our own secrets. And, you know, if we had people yelling at our household, we might, you know, have another business partner or a relationship partner who yells too. And even though we don't like it, there's just something that Mm -hmm. feels comfortable and natural and normal. It's also too like laws of attraction. I remember the first time I realized that I had recreated a childhood experience with my boss. Mm -hmm. Like I had been working in this place for a while and I was in recovery and I and I like one day I was like having a meltdown and I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why am I having this meltdown? And I ended up leaving that place and I was having like you and I share a dark passenger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like, that's one of the reasons why I like immediately fell in love with you because I was like, oh my gosh, a student who who, who mm-hmm. I can identify with, which I work really hard not to over-identify with yeah, students because I think it takes away my neutrality. But there's occasionally where someone does something or says something and I'm like, oh, that's just the way I think too. <laughs> Damn it. But um, I, was, <laughs> I remember yeah. I left this job and I was sitting in church and I was thinking about how I could run my boss over with my car, mm. like in church, yeah. <laughs> you know, like full on like five years of recovery, mm-hmm. you know, God consciousness. And I'm like, in church, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. I'm like, I am in church thinking about running my previous yeah. boss over with my car, and like tears, yeah. <laughs> tears just run down my face about that. And I went home and I like ordered some books, and because I'm I like to read, and uh-huh. I started reading Melody Beatty's book. I think it's like Beyond Codependency or something, one okay. of those books, right? And in there, it has a chapter. It talks about employers, and what it talks wow. about is how people who were raised in dysfunctional homes, and I'll just, I think most human beings were raised in some sort of dysfunction, but some of us have a much deeper dysfunction than others a spectrum disorder. And so when I was- And a lot of people, it's like outside dysfunction and a lot of times it's like inner dysfunction, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so what I realized in this book when I was reading it, that I had recreated a codependent relationship with my boss where I would like lie for this person. I would- I would cover things for this person. I would Mm -hmm. just be so outside of my moral compass to protect this person Mm -hmm. and myself. And for approval, right? And and it was all about wanting approval. It was Mm -hmm. all about I wanted, and it was the masculine. I wanted the masculine's approval Mm -hmm. for me because I never really thought I got it. Now, looking back, I actually got it. It just was in a different language that I didn't Mm -hmm. understand. I even got it from that boss. Yeah. It was just, he was speaking a language I didn't understand. So I it, it ended up, like I finally told him, I went to go back to work for that company. And I said, I just can't work directly for you. Like mm-hmm. you're an amazing human being. You taught me so much, but there's something about the way you act and live in the world mm-hmm. that touches a wound in me that is not healed. And I've had that experience with other men. Mm-hmm. Like I've had masculine trainers that were my mentors who I literally, they could like talk to me. And I just burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why is it some people? And I, and I really started doing the inner work. Like, I don't need to add a girl mm-hmm. anymore. I'm yeah. almost 50 years old. Yeah. Why would I need a masculine to tell me that I'm a good girl? Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't, that's silly. And and it's even been since the trainings. It, mm-hmm. The trainings opened up the possibility and had me see, but there's still so much work as you've probably known out two years later. There's mm-hmm. so much work you yeah. still get to do on a daily basis. Yeah, it's crazy. I think like sometimes it makes me such a good employee or worker because it's like, I have that desire to like constantly want approval from some, like I worked at a call center that wasn't even a bonus based. Like it wasn't even like based <laughs> on like how many deals you got, you got more money, but I just wanted to be the best person mm-hmm. there. And I wanted to like have someone tell me I did a good job. I worked at another 
thing after that where it's like I wasn't getting paid more money by how much I worked, but I wanted the you did a good job, you did great or whatever. And it wasn't necessarily about the money, but more of the approval of someone at a superior you know, position. Yeah, it's so funny because the guy, one of my friends, my guy friends told me years before I'd quit that job, he said, I'm, if I ever started a center, I wouldn't hire you. I'd hire the guy that gets you to work the way you do. <laughs> He's like, that guy's a genius. Yeah. You know, and I don't think he was being intentionally that way. It was just like, it, it came out that way. It came, it was yeah. a, it was a wound, you know, and once you start realizing the wound is there, then you mm-hmm. can operate. It's not like the wound necessarily goes away, but you can operate around it. Meaning like, I know it's there. Yeah. And is this real or is this, is this, uh, imagined yeah, and then you start filling yourself up. Like I am constantly in the reminder of myself, like I'm not a cup that needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. I'm a fucking well that's kind of, is like mm-hmm. directly connected to a source. And so when I, I forget it, like every other human being on the planet, mm-hmm. I forget that I'm a well and then I'm taproot to a source that is infinite. And, and there's the, plenty of water to go around. There's so much and water. And like the scarce, like that's why I got out of the trainings too was the scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. Is that when, you know, when we play like one of those games, like if you win, doesn't mean that I lost. Mm-hmm. And like my whole life, it's kind of like the concept that you could win and I could win later on or I could win again or maybe I just didn't win this time just never was like taught to me. It's like if you won, that means that I lost. And if you're making money, that means that I'm not making money. And if you're doing well, it means that I'm probably not doing well. And just this idea that like, it's not like a jealousy thing, it's a scarcity thing where it's like, there's not enough to go around. So if they're getting more than I am, that means that there's not gonna be enough for me. And it's like, love is infinite, kindness is infinite. Money is basically infinite, you know, yeah, like we, opportunities are infinite. <laughs> we make money. Yeah, I exactly. like, like, we're really like, I was like, there's not enough money. I'm like, uh, money's man made. Yeah, yeah we a, make it. It's yeah. a man made construct. <laughs> They're printing it right now. They're printing it right now. Yeah. Like, like we, yes, we have backing and all this, but that's all attempts to control. Mm-hmm. Uh, control, like, like uh, to create society. I mean, we create mm-hmm. money and, and for that matter, time. I mean, time, of course, you know, days around the sun, but at the same time, it's not a real thing. So money and time are man-made constructs that we make our masters. Mm-hmm. And the moment we master it, we master life. And so I think for me, it has been my mission and goal, not only for me to master it for myself, but to create that win in other people. Like, mm-hmm. I don't win until you win. Mm-hmm. So the moment I master it, you master it simultaneously, and we all win. So this idea that I'm going to become a master of money and time in my own life, and, and everything is going to go great, but then the world's going to go to shit doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense to me. So how do we bring everyone along with us? And I think that's the key. It's the dance because Mm -hmm. not everybody even wants what you want. Yeah. And I think sometimes I struggle with that is that like, I want certain things so bad that I want other people to want them too. (laughs) And like, I've given employee raises and been like, hello, you just got more money. (laughs) Aren't you happy? Like, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's cool. And I'm like, it was like a big raise. You also just got another one like six months before, like what's going on? And they'll be like, well, it's not the money, you know, it's the title. Mm-hmm. And I'll just be like, who the fuck cares about the title? <laughs> you, f- you could call me fucking anything. And as long as I'm getting paid, I'd be happy. And like sometimes my brain just is like, like doesn't understand that not everyone is motivated with the same mm-hmm. motivators. You know, like some people rather work less and make less and have more time off to spend with their family. And some people rather have... A okay salary, but have the title and feel important because they're managing other people. And, you know, they're not just like a rep on the phone. And, and some people really likes being praised. 
-hmm. you know, some people like a little fucking award, you know, once a year, you know, and sometimes it's really hard for me to imagine. It's really hard for me to see other people's needs because I only see what I would want. Yeah, I think that's the key of being a good leader is starting mm -hmm. to understand other people's languages. So like um, Gary Keller has a great book called The Five Love Languages. And mm -hmm. in that, what I love about that book is that it it had me see like, I am an act of service. And I joke that food's my mm -hmm. dialect. We both have that same thing too, <laughs> yeah. where food like, <laughs> where did we yes. go eat recently? Where like literally we had the, enough food to feed like 20 people. Yeah, I was thinking about that for a week. I was like, <laughs> man, next time I cheat, I'm gonna uh, kapow. <laughs> It was a kapow. That was really it was good. So good. It was so good. Yeah. But that's the thing about we're both food. So like mm -hmm. we understand each other well because we share similarities. Mm -hmm. But when you get to someone who like I am not a big gift giver. Mm -hmm. So I, not only do I not get get great gifts, but when people give me gifts, I don't. Like, it doesn't uh, fill me up. Whatever, you know. Yeah. So you when you start to understand what other people what drives them and what motivates them, mm -hmm. then you can be with them in a way and support them. And and that's the key. And I think when we think leaders lead because they're you know like everybody admires their intellect we were talking about intellect versus emotional intelligence i'm like no it's really an emotional intelligence mm -hmm. because if i can begin to understand what drives you like for instance i work with people who think money is the is what everybody wants everybody wants money we just got to make more money got to give more money make more money mm -hmm. and then other people are like no 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 actually i want to know that i'm doing a good job at what i do and then mm -hmm. i'm creating value mm -hmm. and so i'm like you need to speak all of those languages as a leader. You yeah. need to pay money to the people who want money and be fair to the ones who don't because that's the other thing. Like mm -hmm. people who are not motivated by money still need to get paid. And then also creating value through praise, also creating value through like I'm a project person. Mm -hmm. I feel valuable when you give me things to do. Yeah, hey, I thought of this and you'd be great and yes. whatever. And you're like, oh, I'll do that. I'll tackle that whole thing. Yeah. I'll tackle that whole thing. But if yeah. you leave me in the dark, like I get FOMO for mm -hmm. work. Like <laughs> someone's got this great project. I'm like, why am I not on that project? Yeah, how come how I didn't get invited? I, yeah. What's happening there? And then someone will say, well, we just didn't think you had the time. And I'm like, well, you should have asked me anyway because yeah. I want to know that I was, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by just processes. I yeah. love to watch things unfold. Yeah, and I create. think you like to have a goal, have a timeline, and then be like, can we do it? And then you're like, oh, we're going to do it. <laughs> That's why the trainings yeah. work so well yeah. for me because I got a set amount yeah. of finite time to yeah. do certain things and mm -hmm. I got only that time to do it. You know, the beauty of that that kind of work, and it's it resembles recovery work, like it resembles mm -hmm. treatment, it resembles therapy, therapy whatever, it yeah. resembles all that, but it is not that in the sense that it takes from it, it, it borrows, I should say, not takes, mm -hmm. it borrows processes, but ultimately it comes from another place. People in therapy, when I worked as a clinician, mm -hmm. I looked at people as problems that needed to be fixed, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not saying that was the right way to be there. There's plenty of therapists that didn't think the way I'm thinking, but... And, and even when I was taught, right, like what's the first thing you identify as the problem? Mm -hmm. Then you've got to set goals for them and yeah. da, 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 right? And it's problem-based managed care requires it, right? Um, when I got into recovery, I had a problem that needed to be fixed. Like my drinking and my behavior mm -hmm. was out of control and I was creating problems in my life and I needed to fix that. In the training, there's no problems. There's nothing to be fixed mm -hmm. because everybody's already perfect, whole, and complete. Mm -hmm. My job is to have them know that by the end of the training. Mm -hmm. That's it, which is kind of fantastic if you think yeah. about it. Like it's not, I don't need to fix your finances. I don't need to fix your weight. I don't need to fix your relationships. My job is to have you see you authentically as you were created mm -hmm. before your ego showed up on the scene and started telling you all the stories that you're not what you think you are. Yes, it has an end goal. 
but it's like a lifetime end goal. So the intimacy and the relationship, you know, even people I never see again mm-hmm. after the training, I still like not everybody becomes yeah. my friends like you did. Some of them just they're yeah, they're traveling right. through and they're out again. Uh-huh. But I still have this like this little piece of my heart that they that are, they're still there. Yeah, I mean, just being involved, like we're in like this WhatsApp chat that goes off every day, <laughs> and I don't respond in it, but like I look at it every day, yeah. and I like to see like what people are doing. I think it's hard for me because like I already have like a recovery family, mm-hmm. and I feel like when people don't have that community already. You know, the training community is like so important to them. And not to say that it's not important to me, but it's like I started to see like, hey, I need to like there's people that really depend on me and have known me for years. that I feel like I need to go invest time and energy into those relationships. You do get so close with people in five days. Mm -hmm. It really is 10 years of therapy in a week. Yeah. But what I like about it is that it's also transformative for someone like me who had been clean probably like 10 plus years, have done therapy, has worked all 12 steps, you know, ha- watches people transform on a daily basis and almost thought like I had kind of heard it all and done it all. And it blew my mind. Same experience for me. And it's so funny. My husband says the same thing because he, we both had around around 10 years of recovery when we did it. And mm-hmm. he says it's like... No offense to like the 12 steps. He's like, listen, the 12 steps are like kindergarten. Mm -hmm. You know, even the big book talks about it. You know, he's Mm -hmm. like, I feel like the trainings that we did were like university. Like the. I thought it was like universal. (laughs) It is universal too. (laughs) Part two was like, part one was like university. Part two was like universal. And it was so fucking crazy that like, I don't know. I think I just, uh, one, I'm a Kool-Aid drinker. Like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> me too. Like, I'm just like, oh, fuck it. There's Kool-Aid to be drank? Like, uh, sign me up. Like, I'm just, you know, people are like, oh, it's a cult. I didn't, like, you know, that's why I was, did so well in recovery because I was like, cult, cool. You know, I, <laughs> I was, always tell people my brain needed a good washing. Yeah, my so brain needed good. a good washing. I mean, every once in a while, sign me up. rinse and repeat, my brain is yeah. all fucked up again. Yeah, I was happy to have my brain washed. It made sense. When I found out about the 12-step program, I started reading the book. It made so much sense. It blew my mind. And when I did the trainings with you, and I was, I didn't want to like it. <laughs> so it's like I went you were there. Like, no. I went there like, this is lame, you know? And I had done a training before. So I was like rolling my eyes, like, whatever. I'm just going to do this to appease a friend. Like I said, like, other than getting clean, probably the best experience of my life, like, my dad did it. Oh, and I didn't know your dad yeah, did my it. dad did it in the Spanish one. Oh, that's and, awesome! Oh my god, he was crying, and we got to <laughs> hug. Ah! He was all into it for like a couple months, and then he like fizzled out of it. Yeah, a lot of people. I mean, he, listen, it's not meant to be a lifetime. Program. Yeah, for sure. I I I still think it was because I probably could never get him to go to therapy. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, listen, my dad did it. My dad still gives people the wow. four fingers when he's yeah. <laughs> like when he wants. Yeah, to and the thing is, it's like you can say that a million times, and it's like when you experience this. Yeah. It is like so cool. Well, that's the key because it's experiential. Yeah. So when you think about like transformation or book, like I book read, you book mm-hmm. read, right? And when you book read, you see things and it's like, oh, that makes total sense. But then when you experience it, it's mm-hmm. a different, it's something different. So like someone, the, the question I think they ask in the first training, which I don't facilitate this one, but is like, do you remember your first grade teacher's name? Mm-hmm. And most people are like, eh, I don't know. Do you remember the name of the first person you ever kissed? 
Mm-hmm. Well, why is that different? Because one is an experience that's like so profound. And so part of what we do in that training of those workshop is to create experiences that change not just your your thought product patterns, but also change like their constetics. Mm-hmm. So you know, their physicality too. It's not, it doesn't take a lot of work, but there's physicality because the, the body actually has muscle memory, just mm-hmm. like working out. And so that's why we say like the part one is all about awareness. Part two is all about breaking through that awareness. Mm -hmm. And the third level is long. It's like a hundred days because in the third level, that's where you're, you've, you've like broken through, but in order to create new habits, you need to do it for about a hundred days. And apply. Yeah. Like that whole experience that we did with like, you know, scenarios being neutral Mm -hmm. and that we get to choose whether they're positive or negative was like really profound for me because like, I know that, but sometimes you know we forget mm-hmm. we have something happen to us like a bankruptcy how could that be positive like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like what the fuck are you talking about you know yeah and in the training like you really do see that like even the worst things in our life are neutral are neutral yep you know a flower being born and one get, dying is like a neutral thing well there's a great you know? there's a book there's a book of est so the book mm-hmm. of est i'm sorry there's a training called est and in est there was there they wrote books where they like transcribed entire trainings into a book mm-hmm. and then they compared it to heidegger which if you look up martin heidegger he was a great uh, oncological person however he was also part of the nazi party so Mm -hmm. take it with a grain of salt it's not meant to be offensive unfortunately we have a lot of things that have come out of that um, terrible experience in this book with heidegger and with uh warren Earhart, and 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 this was called speaking being and in it they talk about there are people out there who think it's raining to get them wet like oh my god it's raining and it's getting me wet and it's like they're upset because Mm -hmm. it's raining to get them wet. it's ruining their wedding day whatever it might be then there's another type of person who goes, oh my gosh, it's raining to create flowers and it makes the world such a great place and without rain. And was it April showers brings May flowers? Mm-hmm. The truth is it's raining because the water vapors had heated to a certain degrees, rose to a certain mm-hmm. level, turned back into water condensation and come out of clouds. Mm-hmm. That's why it's raining. It's scientific. But we make up stories based upon our own historical context. Mm -hmm. And some of it's like, so whether I'm saying it's great or it's bad, I'm still making up a story coming Mm -hmm. from my ego. Now, as a human being, sometimes I think it's it's fine to be, it's very effective for me to put a bad spin on something, Mm -hmm. especially if it's something I don't ever want to do again. Like that was terrible, don't do that again. And sometimes it's good to put a good spin on things like, oh my gosh, that terrible experience was actually created me into being this, like I say my childhood, right? Mm -hmm. I was raised by a mother who was mentally ill and had addiction and serial bride. She'd been like married five times. And, Mm -hmm. you know, imagine growing up and, you know, and my, oh, and by the way, my brother's a sociopath who Mm -hmm. like tried to kill women. So, I mean, like I had some bad experiences growing up and I look at it today and it, it serves me not to dwell on that from a negative, but to say, you know what? It makes me a really effective human being. And the reason I can look at someone and I can read their physicality and I can be with them in such a way is because I had to do that to survive my child. I mean, literally needed to be able to like, is that person safe right now? Even if it's the same person, mm-hmm. I had to be be able to read them in a matter of seconds to protect myself. And so that I'm, I wouldn't want it to be any different. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's a choice I'm making. I could say, oh my God, these terrible things happened to me. I'm never going to be anything. It's not worth it, blah, blah, blah. Or, But the truth is sociopaths happen. They happen. 
They happen in our world. Mm-hmm. Narcissistic, mentally ill mothers happen in our world. That's part of being a human in the human condition. I just happen to spin it so that it serves me mm-hmm. and what I'm doing. Yeah, and, and you ended up using it instead of it using you. Absolutely. You know, and I think that, you know, oftentimes when people like talk about this, they feel like it's like, oh, so you're just going to tell yourself like some happy, lovey story about like whatever happened to you. But there needs to be like a balance based in reality, right? Like there needs to be this balance of like, okay, well, sometimes you do fuck up. And that was like, (laughs) I have a friend who was like, he posted something the other day that was like, oh, you know, everything happens is God's will. I'm like, well, sometimes you fuck up too, you know? (laughs) It's like not everything... It's free will. Yeah, there's like (laughs) accountability, you know, that like we have to be accountable for the way we act. That was one of my biggest misconceptions about recovery is that I thought that as soon as I said that people that were calling themselves addicts were not taking accountability for what they were doing. But it's actually the opposite. They actually are taking accountability. Mm -hmm. They're actually diagnosing themselves. They're actually repaying back any type of harm that they've done to the best of their ability. And they're going to try to live a normal life by owning what they are, as opposed to me thinking that they were just chalking off to saying, oh, I'm an addict. Yeah, it's limitation of matter. That's what, you Mm -hmm. know, if you come from the trainings aspect, we talk limitation of matter, which means that I'm five foot four, female, Mm -hmm. uh, 40, almost 50. I'm not going to be an NBA star. It's not (laughs) happening. I'm probably not going to be a rap star to my... I wouldn't wouldn't chuck that off yet. (laughs) Stamina comic Mm -hmm. might still happen. But the reason I say that is because I could be like all in my shit about that. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, limitation of matter. I'm never going to be... And I'm not going to self-will myself six foot four and male to become Mm -hmm. NBA and and become like coordinated to play basketball. Like... Think about it. So when we talk about limitation of matter now, but however, in the limitation of the body that I have, I can do amazing things. Mm-hmm. But if I spend all my time trying to be something I'm not, I'm going to miss it. So I think about alcoholism the same way. Like I'm a person who experienced alcohol, alcoholism. I don't usually say I'm an addict because mm-hmm. you know I have a whole bunch of stuff about labeling. I also don't say I'm a per- I'm recovered. I say mm-hmm. I'm a person in recovery because yeah. it's only an experience. The mm-hmm. moment I step out of recovery and back into alcoholism, I'm a person experiencing alcoholism. Yeah. And it's a moment by moment choice. But I don't have any qualms about what other people say or do. This works for me. Mm-hmm. But when I decided, like when I chose to identify with alcoholism, I accepted a limitation of matter that when I take a drink, a drink takes a drink and a drink takes me. Mm-hmm. Just like when I take a drug, a drug takes a drug and a drug takes me. And it takes me to some really dark places. I don't really want to be, nor should I be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... When- and like what I try to tell people is that like, I think what the trainings also helped me was like, we thinking right and wrong. Sometimes it's just like, well, is that working for you? (laughs) It's like, I have a friend who's like, doesn't believe in God at all, hates spirituality. And I'm like, all right, well, is that working for you? (laughs) You know, and it's like, sometimes like, it doesn't really matter if you think that it's right, or if you think that it's stupid, if it's not working, it's not working. And like one of my favorite lines in the 12 step program is the most important thing about this is that it works. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's not like for like millions of people. Yeah, it's millions not like, of people. And like I think like with religion, there's that like issue of like where we're right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And in the 12 step program, it's like like we're not right, but it's working 
for yeah. these people. Obviously. That's what I love about the 12 steps. If you read the literature, it's just like anything else. Mm-hmm. The trainings are the same way. 12 steps, religion is the same mm-hmm. way. If you read the literature and interpret it for yourself, you're probably going to come out the other side mm-hmm. in pretty good shape. Yeah. Or if you have a trusted mentor, spiritual guide, mm-hmm. sponsor, someone who can help you interpret it for you, usually you're going to come out okay. When you begin to adopt other people's interpretations and not do your own work when it comes mm-hmm. to the 12 steps, religion, Bible, training, it doesn't matter, right? And not come from like a personal point of view of like, this is the way I view it and it works for me. Yeah. But the that whole like, you need to do this is like- Same with the Course in Miracles, any yeah. of it. Anything that I try to impose my interpretations onto you are going to create mm-hmm. discord. Like once you completed the trainings, can I guide for sure? I can mm-hmm. give, but ultimately it's up to you to interpret it. And then if you're way off context, then of course I would always be like, listen, um, that's not exactly what mm-hmm. it says. Let's yeah. go and look at the, let's look at the literature. Mm-hmm. But if it works for you that way and you're not creating harm in yourself and others, it's not up to me to judge it. And mm-hmm. I, that's what I love the training opened up for me as well. It's like yeah. everybody gets to have their own way. There's as many ways to recover as there are people seeking recovery. Mm-hmm. There's as many waves to spirituality as people seeking spirituality. There's sure. as many ways to the awakening as people seeking the awakening. Mm-hmm. The key is you got to know what people are seeking. Some people in religion, some people in AA, NA, 12-step programs, some Mm -hmm. people in the trainings are not actually seeking what is being offered. Mm -hmm. That could be problematic. And some people just don't see how counterproductive what they're doing is. Like I was talking to someone the other day and I was like, yeah, well, some people believe that if you're gay, you're going to hell. And this, uh, this girl was like, telling people they're going to hell is one of the worst sins you can do, you know? I don't know, like for me, I really just like to always say like, well, this is the way that I view it. And if you're not asking me for help, like I'm not gonna yeah, go I'm around. Yeah, I'm not paying your bills, yeah, it's not, not my paying, business. Whatever, hey, that works for you. How does your story start? When I was born, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, your brother really was diagnosed sociopath? He died in prison. Um, He's died. Wow. He, he died in prison after he attempted to murder a woman. Um, really? He tried to hit a woman in the head with a board. Um, oh, my God. And he got attempted murder. Now, that was his third violent offense. All of his offenses were against women. Oh, violent. Attempted rapes. Rapes, I'm assuming, that he didn't get caught for. Mm-hmm. Um, one time he was stabbed by a woman who said he attacked her, which is probably true. Wow. Um, when I was a kid, so you probably heard me say this, and it's true, but when I was a kid, we didn't. I didn't have any friends over because I didn't want to invite them over because he's my older brother and I was always concerned that he would act sexually upon them and they were younger. So you knew this growing up? 100%. He was the trifecta. You know how sociopaths typically do three things. Catch things on fire, pee the bed, and kill small animals. He did all three of those before he was even 10 or 11. Wow. Yeah. As a child, like seven, eight years old, you knew like, hey, my brother's dangerous. I shouldn't have people around him? Yes, Wow. Yeah, I, I I had a sense, like a spidey sense, that whatever he was doing to me or to my sisters, uh-huh. would, he would do to others, you know? And I found out since then, wow. like many of my cousins, my female cousins, female friends I grew up with, he was a per, their first perpetrator wow. of, of sexual abuse or sexual assault. So, you know, I think, like I said, I just, you watch people and there's like a, a psychic change that happens in him. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't, you know, like when I would feel like his dark passenger, let's just, I mean, his dark passenger is way darker than yours and mine. <laughs> hey, <laughs> thank God. Because yeah, sometimes. There for the grace of God go yeah, I. <laughs> sometimes like people, you know, fucked up shit goes on in the world and people are like, how could somebody do that? And I'm not saying that I would. 
but I do have something really dark. Yeah. As a kid that that like thank God that I grew up in like a loving household and I'm not that far off on the spectrum. Yeah. You know, and found recovery. Well, and I think that's the thing to key that I I think I always kind of held on to was that because my brother's only four years older than me, in my mind, I kept thinking, like, this isn't that bad because, well, because I'm, I'm really tough. Like, like I'm not, and I am. Mm-hmm. I'm very sensitive, actually. But, like, I'll be damned if I let anything bad happen to me in my own home. So I was very much alert. I had a lot of alerts mm-hmm. that went off. And sometimes, unfortunately, those alerts still go off and they're not warranted. But I typically trust them, mm-hmm. even if they're not totally warranted, because I would rather be wrong <laughs> and be safe than to be wrong and be yeah. dead. I think that's what changed for me when I got clean was my whole life I was so curious about anything going on. Mm-hmm. What's going on over there? Like, I remember being in, like, second grade, and there'd be, like, cop cars, and I would just ride my bike to them, you know? <laughs> Like, what's going on over here? And, like, somehow get involved and get questioned. And I thought it was so cool. And my mom would be like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and most people would be like, oh, shit, cops are going to run. Like, I, I was like just running to the crime. Yeah, I was just like, hey, like, what's going on? And, like, pretending like I knew something, you know? How many times you've been investigating? Yeah, you know? And it's like my whole life, you know, there would be a party and I'd be the one person arrested. And, like, yeah. I always was just that one person that always got in trouble when no one else did. And it's because I'm usually front row and center at anything that's going on. That makes on. sense. And, and you and you speak your mind. I think that sometimes that might not be Yeah. I might yeah. get in trouble. And I just talk out of my ass, you know. <laughs> I might have experienced you talking <laughs> yeah. about your ass once or twice. So it's like when I got clean, I think that's when I started to get a little more timid and didn't have to, you know, I just wasn't trying to go see what was going on all But do the time. you think that that's a comfort in your own skin? Because that's what I yeah. experienced. Like it wasn't that I got less boisterous because I've always been a voice, uh, but I found that I feel like I'm so much more comfortable in my skin that I don't have to know everything anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can be in situations, I still don't like big crowds and I definitely mm-hmm. don't like certain situations that resemble certain like childhood stuff. But I'm aware now that I'm like, oh, that's probably mm-hmm. not a real thing. I'm just imagining that or I, I'm still alert, but I don't let it consume me mm-hmm. anymore. But I still, like I said, the dark passenger is still with me. So I have impending doom sometimes for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll like, what's what next is going to happen? And there's nothing going on mm-hmm. because I couldn't relax as a kid. I think I feel impending doom. And it excites me. <laughs> <laughs> I think some, I thought that the other day. I, I was like, maybe I like impending doom because it's like brings my blood pressure up. It kind of. Well, I think that it excites me in a calming way. <laughs> so I think that for some reason, when there's something really horrible, like I was in a sh- at the shooting at Aventura Mall, and my brother-in-law was freaking out. Huh? Like. And you're just like chillaxed. I don't know. Like my heart rate, like. People are screaming, yelling, and I don't know why. It's just like I've always found like this numbing feeling when things are like horribly wrong. And like my COO like always compliments me. Like, you know, I've always commended you for how calm you are all the time. And I don't know if it's a healthy thing. You know? No, I know. Because sometimes I'm like, I should be reacting. <laughs> just don't. It's. I find that I don't think I react during during the crisis. Like my, I'm usually during a crisis, I'm fine. But uh-huh. if there are no crisis, I feel like my brain makes one up just to yeah, just to 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 be na- like that. What we talked about the comfort place, mm-hmm. like to be comfortable, and and I get that that's a residual over a period of time. And mm-hmm. I, and that's really why I drank. I think because yeah. I, I once I got to a certain age, like I needed to escape this mind of mine. I wanted to feel that feeling all the time. I didn't have any concept of like 
this is what we do at parties. This is, I was like, I want to do this at work. You know, I was like, I want to feel like this. That's because it's like at the party, you're already at the party. Like, right. I want to feel this when I'm doing things I don't want to do. Yeah. 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 You know, because it's like when I was high, I would paint the fence. I would wash the car. Yeah. Like it made everything bearable. Yep. I think for me as an adult now, I still find a lot of peace and comfort in being alone. Whereas when I first got clean, I could never be alone because mm-hmm. I like practiced it. You know, it's like anything else. Like I just sat on myself and read a book and wrote. And now like I really do enjoy being alone so much. Yeah, I, I, mine's the same way. I think um, one, I was grateful that I got there before COVID hit. Could you imagine if you're oh still my God. like, I look at people who are like still in it, like still in that FOMO. I need to be around people. I need yeah. to drink. I need to party. And I'm like, what did they do during like mm-hmm. COVID when we were all locked down? Like, yeah, almost nothing changed. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I'm like, I love being around people in recovery. Because it's just different. It's yeah. almost like a family gathering. Like, I don't know. There's just something about drug addicts that just feel like I could be like in another state and not know anybody and just going to some shitty meeting with like fucking shitty coffee yep. in the hood just like is home to me. But like birthday parties. Oh, the worst. <laughs> the worst. Someone's first grade. like you when, know. when normal people come yeah. and have normal conversations, yeah, you you're know, like, you want to. <laughs> yeah, I want to die. You want to do. I'm like, can I give you my fifth step right now? Because yeah. I want you to go away. No, mm-hmm. I, I 100% get that because I know that like, have you ever been like to Hawaii? Yeah. I love going to meetings in Hawaii because they're like, aloha, and then your name, and there's like 80 people screaming. I never screaming, went to a meeting. Oh, you got to wow, go. They're like cool. outside, first of I all. I wanted to go. I didn't And there's like, like, I was outside. I was on the big island. of I was on Kona, mm-hmm. um, and I went to this I, this meeting, and there's I'm like 80 people, and they're on this big thing, and all, mm-hmm. the, all the visitors introduce themselves, and, and they're like... Aloha, Millie, really loud. Uh-huh. And it was just like, I don't know, it was just a cool feeling. Wow. Yeah. Everyone seemed, yeah. Everyone seemed so beachy. And I'm not, we live in Florida. There's yeah. beach meetings in Florida. But it's too. different. It's, it's different, different than when the you go island. To, yeah. yeah. I tried to go in Mexico, but it was all Spanish speaking. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, mm, I don't speak Spanish. I could probably interpret it, but yeah. there weren't any women either. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know yeah, if no, I want to go in a meeting in Mexico, S- Mexico yeah. where everyone speaks Spanish and I'm the only female mm-hmm. there. That may not be this. Yeah, it's the number one kidnapping country in the world. <laughs> but, um, okay, so back to your story. So you grew up with your brother that yep. was, I had no idea. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like. Because I think you said it, but I never well, knew if you were my, joking. Everyone thinks I'm joking when yeah. I say when I was 10 um, years old, my brother molested all the neighborhood children and I finally had something in common with them. Like, wow. like it's a joke, but it was, it's real. a real oh story. Like he molested all the neighborhood children. And wow. And I, I didn't want to be Where that did you grow up? Everywhere. My mother was a gypsy. So we, we lived in Missouri. I was born in Texas, lived in Oklahoma, Missouri, Mississippi. And then back to Oklahoma and Missouri. And she was using? Most of the time, yeah. But really mental health. Really mental health. Yeah, because even when she, she was worse when she stopped using. She like stopped using like recreational drugs. I think she used like um, Adderall. She convinced Mm -hmm. the doctor she had adult ADHD and used Adderall, but she was way whacked out crazy Mm -hmm. when she stopped using marijuana and alcohol and all that kind of stuff and got so quote unquote sober. So what was like a typical day (laughs) growing up? 
Which age group? Like, so I ended up moving. Like seven to ten. I, eventually, I moved in with my dad, and then I ended up mm-hmm. moving in with my my bonus dad, and they ended mm-hmm. up raising me from like fourteen on. But when I was a kid, you know, my sisters were about five and six years older than me, and they so they went to school before I did. You're the baby. I'm the baby. Me too. And so, see, so much mm-hmm. in common. I don't know. Um, I would get myself up at like kindergarten age. This mm-hmm. is crazy, whacked out. When I think back at this, I'd get myself up. I'd get myself dressed. And go to school in kindergarten. I carried my wow. own key and like think about it, wow. right? First grade kindergarten, and I came home and unlocked the door and let myself in and stayed by myself. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember, and it wasn't like we were went without a whole lot. There was a bunch of people living in a small house, mm-hmm. and we would like I started, made the snack with slice that we didn't have potato chips. My mm-hmm. mom did not chop for groceries, so but she we always had potatoes. So I'd scrub a potato and slice it like potato chips and put salt on it and eat it raw. A raw and, potato and called it my potato chips after school. So I'm wow. I'm like five or six, first grade, second grade. I was living in Texas. Oh my god! So not only did I walk home, let myself into school, I used a knife. And mm-hmm. I cut potatoes from it. I think about when my kids were five and I like sometimes when they were little, I'd look them and they're all grown now, but I'd, I'd see them do stuff and I'd be like, <laughs> I was doing that at five. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is wrong with these kids? And then my ex-husband used to be like, Millie, there's nothing wrong with our children. Mm-hmm. The problem was your mom was a wackadoodle. She mm-hmm. should have never let you walk home by yourself at five and take care of yourself yeah. in the way you did. And she came home every day and slept. She napped for two and a half, three hours wow. in the av- evening every night. And we were like Bay-Bay's kids. We like ran the neighborhood. For the most part, our house was clean. She kept us clean. We always had, you know, clean mm-hmm. clothes. She she had a thing about cleanliness. But other than that, I mean, there was no socialization. No. We had poor social skills. Poor communication skills were tough. I had mm-hmm. to develop them myself. Um, fortunately, my, my saving grace was I have a sister who's my middle sister. In fact, we're best friends. Mm-hmm. I talked to her on the way over here. We're like wow. best friends forever. She's been like my mom to mm-hmm. me. You know, she was like six she changed my diaper. She took mm-hmm. care of me. There are two things that saved my life. One was her, and then her f- biological father became my bonus dad. At some point wow. when my parents were a mess, my uncle was murdered. My mom's brother was murdered when I was five. It was one of my first memories was him, hmm. got caught up in some motorcycle gang, took some money from someone, didn't do a hit, and they killed him and his girlfriend, hacked them up and put them in trash bags. Wow. And so at the time- this my Missouri? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so my mom and then we were on a run. We were on the run during this time because the FBI and this motorcycle gang was looking for my uncle who lived with us. He actually mm-hmm. lived in our basement. And so we were. this is one of the times where we lived in multiple states. And my mom had, my biological father had taken my siblings to go live with their dad. Mm-hmm. And I was staying with them because I was their child. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point, I don't know how it happened, but the way the story goes to my memory was that Walter was my bonus dad. He called him and said, you know, bring the baby here too. Like she needs she needs to be here too, like with her siblings. Like mm-hmm. stop, like you guys are on the run. Don't take this kid on the run. So they left me there with him and I stayed there with him during some formative years. So during wow. that time, you know, it was like pre-K and maybe kindergarten. It's kind of a and your blur. brother's living there too. My brother was living there too, yeah. But at the time he hadn't really shown a lot of the sociopath. I mean, he was mm-hmm. like seven okay. at the time. So he wasn't quite, you know, he, w- he had burned down some neighbor's yards. <laughs> Definitely still wet in the bed. I remember, wow. you know, um, but he hadn't killed any small animals yet, so oh we God. were we weren't we weren't full full swing sociopathic at this point. But um, you know, looking back on it, I realized like he. Uh, fast forward, um, my when my bonus dad died, I found out that my brother was a product of a sexual assault. My mom had been sexually assaulted at some point. He basically did his fifth step with me. Wow! When he was so, on his deathbed. So your brother is a product of rape. Mm-hmm. 
which I, you know, I don't think anybody knew that no, back yeah. then in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. No one cared about that. I mean, you didn't even call it that back yeah. then, probably. Uh, oh, you fuck somebody and don't basically, know who it is. Basically, that's what they said about her. And, wow. uh, and so looking at that, my mom, looking back, was very abusive to him. I didn't realize it growing up. But, but she probably had a lot of resentment and it brought up all that trauma every time mm -hmm. she looked at him. And mm -hmm. The baby she didn't want. And didn't want him. Yeah. It brought so much shame to her. Um, it was a reason for her divorce. It was like so much stuff mm -hmm. that it brought up. And um, so looking back, like I can see now, like, wow, he, he was born to someone who didn't want him and brought into a world where he was not wanted and that he was treated so poorly and that continued to to fester inside of him to mm -hmm. the point that he, I don't want to say he didn't have a soul because I don't want to say that, but he had, like I said, it's so much, the the way he must have felt about himself, mm -hmm. not being loved by your mom, unbearable. Yeah, it's that uh, core, you don't matter. It's the core, you don't matter. That's right. Yeah, so, and like, you know, I think uh, when people do like crazy stuff, it's because they start to think like, well, if I don't matter, you don't matter. None of this matters. Like, who cares? Like that kid who shot the, that those yeah. people at the uh, grocery store last week. I mean, that has to be. If you look into his him, he has to have some sort of conversation about himself in the world that people aren't human beings, and if they're not human beings, they don't matter. Mm -hmm. And that means I don't matter. And he wants to matter. That he wouldn't have done that if he, uh, Parkland shooters yeah. case is up right now. So it's, you know, when you start thinking about things, like I have the, I have a lot of compassion mm -hmm. for that experience, for everyone involved, like my mom, my bonus dad, my brother, I mean, even the person who perpetrated it. I have mm -hmm. compassion, you know, everything's, a, what do they say? Uh, everything's a cry for love or fear, mm -hmm. you know? So like, you know, everything's a cry for love. What do I choose, love or fear? And I just choose love. Doesn't mean I want to invite everybody over for dinner <laughs> yeah. or none of them get to babysit my children or yeah. even my dogs, but <laughs> but I can still have a lot of compassion for what their ex life experience is. And mm -hmm. that's, that's was probably the biggest healing that came about for me was... Yeah, and I think people have like a way of just like chalking it up as like, well, it's just like some fucking psychopath that deserves to die. And I'm not saying he doesn't, you know, but I just feel that it's it's really simple to lump things up into good or bad. Mm -hmm. Well, you had shared with us with me earlier about like people who were wrongfully accused yeah, and, yeah. and stuff. And, and I had this, I don't know, this epiphany, I guess mm -hmm. it is really... Like an upside of my upbringing is I spend a lot of time alone. And because I spend a lot of time alone, I spend a lot of time with myself. And I like to think of it like my highest self or some people would call it a Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. whatever you would. But like at 10, I would hear not a voice inside my head like talking to me, but I would hear a consciousness that would say things that were... I would use the word holy or of whole, like meaning like like full of, mm -hmm. of life. And so I had conversations with this holiness or whatever you want to call it, highest self. Mm -hmm. And and it got me through a lot. Like like I said, 10 was when the first time I heard it. And it would mm -hmm. it'll tell me, it might just be one word, but I know exactly what that whole word means. Mm -hmm. So the last time I heard it, or one of the times I heard it, I was really frustrated with this mom's group that I was helping and they weren't, mm -hmm. they wouldn't use Robert rules of order during yeah. their meetings. And it was pissing me off, you know, cause I'm like, what of the course. fuck? They keep talking over each other. Why don't they use Robert's rules? Right. And I was getting aggravated and I wanted to quit. And mm -hmm. I wasn't even like, I had been meditating on it, but I wasn't on a meditation. I was walking my dog and she's a nightmare dog. She mm -hmm. was a nightmare dog. All of a sudden this voice came into my head and it said, finish. And I knew exactly what it meant. I mean, I knew exactly the context of it. And it was, it's a different voice than my own, but mm -hmm. it is my own at the same time. 
And that voice was telling me not too long ago about like the death penalty. Mm -hmm. I had been watching a show about a man with disabilities who was wrongfully accused of murder. And then actually um, Ruth Boehner um, petitioned to get him off of death row mm -hmm. or get people off of death row because people with low IQ shouldn't be on death row. And so yeah. whatever, whatever. Right. And I remember being so angry because he's now DNA has absolved him, right? But really? he spent 20 something years in prison with terrible, wow. most of it on death row by himself. Yeah. And I'm just being so pissed at our society. And then this conversation came. Yeah, and you can see the statistics. I think it's like 8% or 5% of death row inmates are innocent, which if you just look at that, it's like hundreds of people every year. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So I started thinking about that and I was like, why are we as a culture mm -hmm killing our own people it does not deter crime it doesn't do anything yet we keep doing it and we think that we're doing and then and then there was like this voice came in my head and it said something about what about the innocent and then mm -hmm. i was like holy shit i've been pro-choice my whole fucking life and now mm -hmm. do i have to be like anti-abortion when i realize i mm -hmm. don't have to be yeah. but the point being is like i started realizing that there's a context mm -hmm. of life and if i don't have that context or we we as a because mm -hmm. I am a part of the context. If we don't value life, all life, that we're probably not going to see a lot of change in our world. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I want to make anything outlawed or ban or or abolish, you know, the death penalty or abortion or that. It, it's really just a conversation I want to have with yeah, people. Yeah, and it's like a compassion type of thing. Mm -hmm. Like I have friends that are like super anti-abortion, mm -hmm. and I've seen those same friends get abortions. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like. Uh, you got to understand that you don't really know what you're going to do in that scenario until yeah. you are actually going through it. Go have your daughter get raped and see if you're going to have a fucking abortion. Right. right. You know, and it's like, I'm not here to say that. And even if it's not rape, like, what if she just doesn't want to have a baby? Sometimes it's really hard to even have conversations with people who have like, really, because I have opinions, but they're not like, I'm right and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I kind of feel this way because I have experience with, you know, like, like I had an abortion, you know, and. I'm not proud of it. It wasn't like something I was dying to do, but like I, I till today, best decision I ever made. You yeah. know, or that I tried to you know, help fifty percent try to make. <laughs> you know, I go to church every once in a while. And I go to. I used to go more, but I'm friends with my pastor, and he always says that uh, you want to hold your beliefs in an open hand and not a closed palm. You know, like you want to be able to have conversations, and it wants to be like fluid concepts. And I just think that like the whole world is going in this rigid us versus them mentality. Yeah, I feel like I don't have a party a lot of times because- Yeah, I don't even I, wanna say like what the fuck I believe. I think I should be able to vote in all primaries as an yeah. independent. Can uh -huh. I just put that in? That's yeah. the only thing I'm passionate about uh -huh. is why don't I get a vote in primaries as an independent? Because yeah. I identify as independent because there isn't a party that says what I believe, which is mm -hmm. pretty much- I can't tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't live your consequences. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and for me, it's like, as a woman who's not going to be having children anytime mm -hmm. soon, it is not for me to judge a woman who, who chooses differently than I would choose or mm -hmm. that I have chosen. So I just, I simply say to people like, in my heart of hearts, know that it, it's a context that mm -hmm. we got to work on. And when I mean context, meaning the environment, we're in an mm -hmm. environment where life is not sacred, but that's not going to be done through the legal system, the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. any kind of laws. It's going to be done in human to human contact where, because I was a teenage mom. So like when we remove the shame out of, out of being a teenage mom, then yeah. you might find that less people are, or when we start educating women better, mm -hmm. we start offering free birth control and sex education. When we, when we elevate women 
and men up to a certain mm-hmm. standard, you're going to find that some of those things will probably take care of themselves. I was thinking the other day, I was like, I think every guy when they turn 15 should go get a vasectomy <laughs> and go put their sperm in a sperm bank. <laughs> and, only, and, they only get to have it when they want it. And it's like, hey, if you want to get pregnant, you have to go through the sperm bank. It's like, like, like that's it. You have to pass a test yeah, and get a license. Because it's like, you know. We can do the same thing with eggs. Adopting well, a kid eggs. is so hard. And yet anyone can have a kid and... Anyways, so tell me about your story. <laughs> tell, I need to know what happened. What happened? Okay. So uh, You should write a book. <laughs> I, you know, have you? I have not wrote a book. You've thought about it? You've I've thought, thought about, about it. it a lot. I want a ghostwriter. I'm your guy. No, there you just, go. I'll just, I'll just, I need a ghostwriter too. <laughs> you find a ghostwriter, get a two for one. No, for you us. need to write it your you know, I know that's I know. what we teach Listen. people. It's like, no, you don't need a ghostwriter. Just Go lock yourself in a room somewhere and don't come out into this room. Well, you know I do a raw storytelling, which I get up and tell embarrassing stories, like oh, vulnerable stories. Yeah, you have you ever invite done? Invite me. Oh my! Oh, I haven't done it. It's been closed down for the last couple of years because of COVID. But you we'll... used to do like a slam poetry storytelling. Yes. Yeah. That's so cool. You'll have to go. We'll go. We'll go together. And, oh my and, god! And, I have so many yeah. embarrassing stories. So the one that I think you'll probably like the most. Uh, uh, well, there's two, but one one's about being in Hollywood, uh-huh. Hollywood, Florida, because you know all kinds it's of weird. crazy shit happens it's there. Weird, okay. If you're not in Hollywood, Florida, you wouldn't know. But but so I, I mean, I started drinking really young, and 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 drugs and alcohol were my solution. I'm as pretty simple. I did crazy mm-hmm. stuff. I was always the first one drunk. I was always the first one passed out, and I just kept recreating bad scenarios after bad scenarios and bad scenarios. And then I got pregnant with my son. He's 28. And when that happened, I did want to do better. Like I I had a conscious moment when he was born and I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm going to do better for you than what was done for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being that I, you know, I was raised in a household where- How old were you? hmm, I was 18, 19. You see, yeah, I'm 19. So one of the things I had recognized was, is that I couldn't hate men. And have a have a male grow up healthy. Like I had learned that from my mom. I watched and the violence that of the men in my family. She hated men. She hated men. Kept marrying them, but hated yeah. them. I have a, I have a sponsee who I was talking to the other day, and he like I think he's gotten better, but like yeah, he hates women. Yeah, and it's just like he's grown so much, and I feel so good because like getting people clean is cool. Like yeah. you know helping yeah. people like, whatever, but having someone transform into like. Oh fuck all these bitches! Da 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 da! Bitches are hoes. And I'm just like, no, dude. Like they're just <laughs> like us. You lie too. You manipulate too. You cheat. Oh, I never cheated. Da da da! Every girl's ever cheated on me. And I'm just like, no. Like we're gonna look at this as like. Here's my here's my saying to men yeah. who say that. One crazy girlfriend, bad luck. Mm-hmm. Two crazy girlfriends, coincidence. Three crazy girlfriends, you make bitches crazy. You make bitches crazy. Stop it. Yeah. Like you cannot blame all of them for that. I was telling him, I was like, I was like, dude, you gotta get out of this like whole idea that like it's like you hate girls. Like what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And and over the years, like he's really gotten a lot better. To me, like that's really cool. Like that is cool. it feels really cool. Because at the same time, I'm not like judging him in some crazy fucked up way. I'm trying to get him to have a belief that works. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like we were like saying, saying like, does that work for you? It's just not working for you, bro. It's like, dude, if you want to attract something that is good and you want a good girl and this is what you truly want, like, you know, there are good girls out there and you're not exactly a great guy. I think that he has a lot of um, love and compassion and he masks it with uh outer toughness you know like Mm -hmm. my therapist always says uh 
the tougher the shell, the sweeter the, the juice, the, yeah, the, the sweeter the or the softer the, the, the inside, insides, the, yeah. go, the gooier the inside. He yeah. says it more poetic than me. <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of times when you have like these men with really tough exterior. Same thing with women. Yeah, same thing. When you have a woman who hates men, you you can look back and almost inevitably the self-loathing is. Mm-hmm. And it's not even just women who hate men because some women hate women and, you know, it's. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> a lot of women hate women. Women are hard on women. I, I yeah. will find. That has been my biggest challenge. I and used to hate women. And really? didn't know about it. Yeah. I think it seems surprising because you, you seem pretty good I with them. I was such a womanizing well, piece of shit. Well, that doesn't surprise shit. me, but like, like, that you hate them. I, I really did. I really did. And I think it's because they had so much control. Do you want to hear a funny joke? Yes. <laughs> Why do men make more money than women? Men make more money than women because women already own own the men. <laughs> Own vagina. Own vagina. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you guys are always looking to make money to buy. I usually say it with a much more colorful word, but <laughs> I'm trying to be grown up right That's now. That's okay. There you go. The thing is, is it like interesting to me? That's the one thing I learned. Mm-hmm. The upside of what I learned in my childhood was with with my with my situation with my brother was is that that I had power. Like I realized that feminine feminine people have power, and he wanted to take it. Mm-hmm. Like he was always trying to take my power, and and I, I think that's what it was with me was that I didn't like that me as a guy had to win their approval, mm-hmm. and there was like that rejection. And I just fought it with like putting them down and like making fun of them. I can't imagine the women you attracted to oh, yourself. <laughs> I was. They like, probably looked hot. The, the, there's women that was like, yo, in middle school, you like destroyed my life. Yeah. Listen, and I think I'm like, I told. I, and I always say like, I had extremely low self-esteem. I hated myself. I later on became a drug addict. Like, <laughs> like your men's looks like. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better. I like, was wrong for treating you bad in middle school. You deserve better. <laughs> and, and you know what? Like, I think my active addiction hurt me so much to the core where I really believed in karma. And mm-hmm. I really like anything I ever did wrong to someone. Like, I feel like I got so much back to me. Even when I got clean, I found it really hard to to be nice. And I would want to be nice. And mm-hmm. I just didn't know how. It took a long time, probably like a year or two years for me to be like, nice people win. Mine is always like, uh, kindness is not always my first mm-hmm. reaction. So like someone, like you've heard my stories about yeah. a woman will show up in a pair of like tight ass you know, Lululemon <laughs> recalled uh-huh. see-through yoga pants yes. and no underwear. And I'm like, bitch, what are you wearing? Like, I, I can just see my, uh-huh. feel myself getting like, because I, I have this thing where I'm like, does she not know is ha- like what that does to all of us, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's this like thought pattern. And then I'm like, all right, Millie. She knows. She, she probably knows. And get it together. You were young. You at one yeah. point in time liked the attraction. Like you probably did things that pissed off women who mm-hmm. came before you. So access some love, access some compassion and kindness. Doesn't mean don't say something. Mm-hmm. It's just table with what you, table your judgment and your eye rolling mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and come out with compassion first. It doesn't happen all at once once naturally it takes sometimes mm-hmm. it takes me a minute and that's the back to the trainings the best thing the training taught me was how to clear like it i can do it in 30 seconds like 
crazy bitch shows up in a pair of yoga pants that you can see through. No underwear on. All right. It is, uh, we, we're at work. Um, <laughs> not a nightclub. Okay. Clearing. Uh-huh. Here's my thoughts. She shouldn't be wearing that. Here's my feelings. Frustration. The truth is she's wearing pants we can see through. What do I want? I want for her to be happy, joyous, and free. What do I want for myself? Happy, joyous. What do I need? To, what needs to happen here? I need to say to her what I need to say in a way that works because I desire to create a community for which people can feel free and at the same time not be offensive to others. Mm-hmm. So like like literally I walk myself through that before I take an action. Yeah. That, that's the beauty of the two things, 12 steps and the trainings they've given me is a little mm-hmm. bit of pause before I react to things because I did not have that before that. Yeah, and at the same time, like like what my therapist always tries to you know help me with is like, what do you want? What are you not getting? And you know the training is also like, mm-hmm. like, what's missing and what can you add to it? Instead of creating a story mm-hmm. that is exciting and dramatic with no solution, you know, <laughs> because sometimes I just want to tell a story yeah. and just be like, well, agree with me and tell me that this is bullshit. People in recovery, therapy, all that stuff get you in the solution. I'm either not getting what I want or this thing is stopping me from getting what I want. And how can I change my view on it to get what I want? I had an issue with someone like I didn't like. I haven't liked them for years. And I didn't want to go to this thing that I wanted to go to because they were going to be there. And he was like, well, didn't you see them all the time before this? And I was like, yeah, well, it's escalated now. And like, if I see them, I'm going to hit them in the face. And he was just like, well, what happened before that it didn't bother you so much? I'm like, well, before it was like a little annoying. Now it's like, I need to do something. And then he's like, well, you want to go to this thing and now you can't go because you have this idea, whatever. And he was like, couldn't you just go back to thinking of it being annoying and just go? Yeah, if you can't change your actions, change your mind. And I was like, yeah, I guess. He's like, because nothing's really changed. You just changed it in your mind that now you have to do something. But let's just go back to it being annoying and you'll be fine. Did it work? Did you go? Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> I didn't even see them. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like. Another, it's like the another thing is like what I'm worried about doesn't even happen. I, I love that because there's so many times where I like make up something in my mind. I'm like, oh my God, this is totally going to happen. And uh-huh. then the few times it does, yeah. I'm like, see, I was right. It totally yeah. just happened. And uh, so recently I was with my mother-in-law and she was like, are you sure you're not just making something up in your mind? I'm like, no, I'm not making up my mind. And I get in the car later. I'm like, am I making it up? And my husband goes, yeah. listen, you remember my mom's not one of us. Uh-huh. She thinks like a normal person. Just, you're fine. I totally Mm -hmm. get you. And sometimes I think that's the beauty of people in recovery. It's not that you can speak out loud you're crazy and people are like, oh yeah, okay, sure. And then they move you on in the process. They're not telling you your thoughts are wrong. Most people that aren't like in recovery or have done like a lot of therapy or don't have a lot of trauma to work on, you know, (laughs) like most people operate in their own way with zero revision. Mm Mm-hmm. So they don't have the idea of like how I'm thinking could be revised and how I'm thinking about this could be revised or this could change. They kind of just live life as if like, well, this is what it is and this is how I am and it is Mm -hmm. what it is. And whereas like once you start like seeing like the benefits of like how liquid your feelings and thoughts can be, you kind of get obsessive about it and you're like, yes. And then you start to like over control and then you like wean back a little bit. It ebbs and flows for me. Like there's times under high stress, I'm still like rethinking everything. Mm -hmm. I thought for the most part, it lasts very little. Most of the time I'm like, all right, so that happened. New moment, next moment. Sometimes when I would call my sponsor with like all like my job and this girl and all this stuff and like stressed out, he'd just be like, dude, 
When the fuck are you going to start enjoying life? A lot of times I just need to enjoy where I'm at. Yeah. And be like, this is where I'm at. And like, I can enjoy it when it's not great. That's so for me, when I talk about being in recovery and why I have, a, I don't want to say it's a hard time, but I've tabled my over identification with like a recovery program or even like my mm-hmm. trainings or anything, right? Because the moment I over identify with something, I lose, I like lose my connection when I talk about mm-hmm. being the source, like we're not a well, we're not a cup, we're, we're a well. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to lose that connection to source. And if I over identify with something, then I lose that. So one of the things that I've focused on is like recovery for me is not about not drinking. It's not mm-hmm. about not drugging. That's, that is, that stopped early on. Yeah. It's that, about, that's like saying like, uh, being a human is about being alive. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you need to be alive to experience right. being a human. But. I just want to, I mean, being present is what's important to me mm-hmm. and being present in my moment unaltered. Now I drink caffeine mm-hmm. and all that and people could say, well, that's altered, whatever, whatever. But, but like even the most painful shitty parts, like when my bonus dad died mm-hmm. or when my mom died or, you know, the things I've been through, my daughter was diagnosed with, with intellectual disabilities or whatever has happened that uh, like I have learned that I'd rather handle it and create the joy that I want to create than mm-hmm. to anesthetize myself and numb myself out from it. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost like building strength. I feel like the hard times build strength as well as the good times do. So why would I not mm-hmm. want to experience all of it? This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.